The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Hello everyone and welcome to the Echo Chamber. I'm Maya Pavinska-Sims, the Homes Reports Editor for EMEA and I'm here with Joanne Robertson, the Chief Executive of Ketchum in London. Joanne, welcome. Thank you. Um, so Joanne, just a brief recap of your stellar career <laughs> thus far. Um, you started in politics as a Labour Party activist. I can't imagine you getting back, back when we were electable <laughs> all those years ago. We're, we're, which we'll talk about later, maybe. <laughs> and you're also a TV reporter in Scotland, very glamorous. Um, and then you spent eight years at um, Weber Shamwick, rising to be MD of Corporate and Public Affairs, joining Ketchum in 2001. And you were 2011. made... 2011. 2011. Yeah. That's a typo. I know it's like, you know... <laughs> It's like, you're looking good. <laughs> and you're made CEO at the end of 2017, so just over a year ago yeah. in London. How's it been? It's been amazing. I mean, it's. I feel so lucky to have this job, so mm. to be a CEO in our industry, but particularly of an agency like Ketchum and the team that we have in London. Um, so I remind myself all the time how lucky I am to have this type of role, this type of influence, the ability to shape you know, where our agency is going to shape other people's careers and opportunities, which is something I take um, a lot of care of and a lot of pride in. But I won't lie, it's also been a bit of a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. Um, How so? Well, it was, it's it's strange in a way because I was deputy CEO for two years. Mm. And so in my head, the leap to CEO was like a tiny step. But it was actually a much bigger leap. And in part, I think that's because... Up until this point in my career, there's always been somebody with the buck stops. Yeah. So whilst I take a lot of responsibility, it's just in my nature. I'm very accountable. I like to achieve. You know, I'm a kind of goals orientated. I like to win. I'm very competitive. Are you? Ah, uh, yes. I think <laughs> I most people, anyone who's listened to this who knows me, will know that that is true. <laughs> um, you've always got that air cover. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, the buck entirely stops with you, and um. Yeah, my first three months were incredible. So we had a great first quarter mm. financially from a new business point of view, from an employee engagement point of view. So it was all going great guns. And then at the end, at kind of beginning of April, I had this kind of crisis of confidence, which was really weird because it was coming off a high. Mm. And, um, and it's, it's very unusual for me as well because I'm a very confident person. <laughs> Well, I think in part it was a realisation of the amount of responsibility that Mm. I have. Um, I also think it was probably a bit of performance anxiety. I'm like, God, this is going really well. How do I sustain that? How do I maintain it? Mm. Um, And I also think it's partly my personality, which is to live every moment. So every high, every extreme high, every extreme low, which when you're in the kind of CEO job, is extreme, mm. you know, you have these amazing moments where you win a new piece of business or you do an incredible piece of campaign work for a client or we hire a great new talent or you see somebody succeed. But then you also have the opposite. So mm. you have, you know, when you lose a piece of new business that you've put your heart and soul into and the agency's put their heart and soul into and how do you how do you take their pain away a little bit? You feel yeah. a bit parental in that that time. Okay. Or where you lose a client. Well, we didn't really lose a client last year, but in, you kind of, you've got a difficult client, things aren't going so well, how do you fix it? You have a member of staff who leaves, who you feel that you've really invested in. 
And so that roller coaster is really quite, um, it's oh. quite draining. And so one of the things I had to teach myself was to try to live a bit more in the middle. Yeah. So not get too excited by the highs, not get too kind of emotional about the lows, but at the same time not not enjoy things, like oh. not stop enjoying it, because that would also just wouldn't be me. So how do you get yourself out when you have that moment of a crisis of confidence and the buck does stop with you? How do you kind of drag yourself out of it and, and kind of get back on top? Uh, I think a couple of ways, really. One, the people that you surround yourself with. So, um, you know, friends and family. Being able, if you've got good relationships mm. in your life, you can kind of talk quite honestly about how you're feeling, what the pressures are. So mm. definitely not bottling it up, which I think I probably would have done a few years ago. Yeah. Because a few years ago I'd have been like, cannot show any weakness, yes. you know. <laughs> I am superwoman, I can keep doing this. Yeah. Whereas I've matured way beyond that, that it was quite easy for me to open up to my husband, for example, mm. uh, to some friends and even to some of my work colleagues and kind of say, God, this is how I'm feeling really anxious. And I'm worried about everything. I'm catastrophizing. I'm thinking, oh, God, well, that client's not happy. And then if that client fires us, what will that mean for revenue? Mm. What will that mean for the next quarter? What will it mean for people's jobs? Oh, my God, well, I have to let people go, which was just crazy. That's like, a lot of voice in your head. Crazy. Isn't it? So be... Yeah. Being able to talk about yeah. it and have people give me a bit of a kind of bit of a reality mm. check, a bit of a shake, and a bit of a um, and also to plan, so to kind of see that kind of catastrophizing through to a rational point, mm. not to an end point, and say, okay, well, what am I doing about this? Mm. So what's in my control? What can I do about it? Who else can do something about it? How do I kind of make sure that there are people taking responsibility and accountability for different things. And how did um how was the kind of latter six months of the year once you'd figured all that out? <laughs> once I got through that, 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 that bumpy bit. <laughs> is that better? Yeah, really good. And I think it's about um prioritizing time. Mm. Cause one of the reasons I've stayed in the agency world for so long and why I love, you know, communications and love agencies because of the diversity. And especially in a role like the CEO, I mean, mm. every day is so different. I still love doing client work. So I spend probably 50, 60, sometimes more percent of my time with clients. Do you still do that? Yes. Are you still love it? Because I love it. Mm. Yeah. Which and clients do you look after them? Uh, MasterCard, who I've now been working with for 12 years. Wow. They are like, you know... Family. They're part of my <laughs> DNA and I love them as an organisation, mm. as a business. And they do amazing campaigns. They've got amazing people that we work with. And they're such a diverse business. We work across all different business mm. units and priorities, geographies. So it's really exciting. Samsung, um, which was a big win for us in 2016. Yeah. Um, again, a really innovative business uh, where the comms and marketing team there want to push boundaries so mm. we've got lots of permission to do innovative and exciting work. Uh, Procter & Gamble which is still our agency's biggest client so I do a lot of work across there more in the corporate space. Uh, Kempinski Hotel Groups where I do a lot of work with them. So you know Whirlpool. Nice. <laughs> and yeah and I'm involved in the campaign development. I kind of get Elbowed out by the team on execution. Yeah, which is I bet you do. Right. <laughs> so you're not one of the you're not one of these CEOs who's sat in the office pushing a pen across an Excel spreadsheet. No, Good. and I think that's where we're lucky in big agencies, yeah. right? Because I've got an amazing finance director, Gavin, amazing HR director, Kirsty. So I don't need to be doing mm. the do on the operational side of the business day in day out. 
because I trust them and they're brilliant members of my senior team. So it allows me then to focus on what's most important for the business. And to me, there's kind of, there's two things in particular and then a third which kind of complements those two. One is clients. Mm. I genuinely feel as a CEO, as a leader in this industry, if I'm not with clients on a daily basis, hearing what they're saying, hearing their feedback on the work we're doing, hearing what they're asking for, Mm. how can I build the agency of the future? How do I know the right skills to bring in? How do I know where the gaps are in our current setup? So that's really important to me. And then the second is our people. So I spend a lot of time with our people of all levels and all parts of the business, hearing what their experience is like at Ketchum, what excites them, what frustrates them, how can we accelerate you know, some of the stuff that we're doing, how can they help me mm. and the agency to do that? Because they are the most powerful asset, most important asset that we've got. So I spend a lot of time with them. And then wrapped around that is business development. So yeah. how do we go win new clients, new types of work, yeah. you know, keep it fresh? And um, going back to the people piece, I know that's just a real passion of yours, bringing on young talent and also... Um, Women in leadership and women in senior roles is still, you know, still a, a huge gap there, yeah. even for this industry. Yeah. Um, what? Where do you stand with that? How do you think we're doing on women in leadership? In I think PR? we're doing better. So um, I'd certainly say, you know, in the kind of seventeen years I've been in this industry, the change has been vast, and the number of women who are now in um, senior leadership roles. And also the number of women who aspire to that mm. and who come back into the business if they've taken a career break for a family or for whatever else. Um, but still not good enough mm. for an industry that's really dominated by women. You know, when you look at um, you look at the number of female CEOs in the UK. Mm. Yeah, well, it's a handful, isn't it? Yeah. And when you look at things like the gender pay gap, mm-hmm. you know, our industry's gender pay gap is above the national average. So stuff like that, we are, we are lagging. Mm. Um, I'm a member of the Women uh, in PR Committee, so we're working really hard through that to try and inspire, encourage, mm. support you know, women who are trying to break through into those leadership roles to do it. Um, and it's hard. Mm. It is hard because there's so many kind of barriers in people's way. And I'd say that's there's individual barriers that I think women put in their own way. So helping them unlock that, understand that, get mm. over that is really important. Then you've got employer barriers that kind of are in the way that we need to yeah. move and think about. And then we've kind of got the institutional and societal barriers. So it's not an easy task But I think things like mentorship are really, really important. Um, I think role models and people speaking out and making it as easy as possible. Mm. And critically, and one of the things we've done in Women PR under BB Hilton's leadership is really open up women in PR to men too. Mm. So we've recruited um, five very senior male ambassadors uh, to the committee. So they've got got to be part of the conversation, right? This is not a a female conversation. It's a societal conversation. And for too long, we've kind of kept that door closed. It's Mm. a them and us uh, feeling. And I think if we're really going to get through some of those big barriers, we need men to help us. And we need men to understand... More. I mean, we do a great thing at Omnicom, just coming up again, um, Omni Women, oh, yeah. which is amazing. And we do a summit on uh, International Women's Day, so on the 8th of March. And last year, for the first time, one of our keynote speakers was a male leader from 
Omni Women, um, Omnicom, Phil Bartlett, who runs CDM. And he told the story of from a male perspective. So his whole speech was around um, boys don't cry. Mm. And so he talked about how boys are raised and all the things that they're told from when they're toddlers to their adolescence to they're in the workplace about how they can't show emotion, they mm. can't show weakness. You know, they're leaders, they're powerful. All these things. He said, so if you imagine how we are brought up, it's very difficult then when we're faced with this movement that kind of says men can show emotion and men can yeah. be more generous and empathetic and all the things that are expected of modern leaders. So hearing the male perspective was fascinating. Mm. But the other thing we did was Ketchum was one of the first agencies within Omnicom to send a man as one of our delegates. So one of our account directors from Ketchum London went to the summit and he was like... He came back evangelising. Blown away. <laughs> yeah, because he's like, God, I had no idea. Yeah. He's like, I had no idea how certain situations could make yeah. a female colleague feel or the perception that there is about if someone's a working mum yeah. or if someone's a carer or you know, some of the yeah. the things that stand well, in the way. Unless you're living it. Unless you're unless you're living it, your your assumption is that other people understand the experiences you've had. But yeah. it's it's completely different. Back to your point about role models. Do you see yourself as a role model? Is, you know, you've got a little one, another one on the way. Oh, I know. Well, Chief no, no. executive <laughs> of a leading agency. I definitely, I think, um, you know, I made really good choices in my life. It's funny, loads of people say to me, well, you're really lucky because mm. I've got Oh, the, I hate that. Drives me <laughs> nuts. Luck was not no. involved. But like, my husband is a true partner. Mm. And so, you know, we share everything in mm. terms of responsibility at home, whether that's, you know, childcare, nursery drop-off and pick-up. Um, it's a constant negotiation. Who's got what? Yeah. Who can... We both work full-time. Um, but it's a true partnership, mm. which even today is still quite unusual. Yeah, it is. You know, I see a lot of um, women who are in important and big jobs but are expected to be solely responsible for what yeah. happens at home. Yeah. And that I think is is a real challenge. Yeah. So trying to um trying to show people make good choices. I don't think luck comes into it. Yeah. I chose that husband because he had some of those values and um and that was that was really important. And then the second thing is I try to be really honest at work about because I think it's dead easy to look at me and my position with a family, you know, I also have fun in life mm. quite a lot, and to kind of go like, oh, God, like she's got it really, she's got it nailed, it's yeah. easy. But it's hard work, yeah. right? You know as well as I yeah, do. It, it's, it's not easy, you know, keeping all the balls in the air. No. You're going you're gonna to drop some. Every yeah. single day you're going to drop something. And you know, I've had, as, a, as I had a kind of crisis of confidence at work, kind of a few months into being a new CEO, I had a crisis of confidence probably about the middle of last year about am I being a good enough mother? Mm. Am I there often enough? Oh, gosh, yes, like, I hear you on that at the I mean, the weekends, my life is dedicated to that boy. Mm. But, like, at weekdays, I'm like, oh, my God. I think I'd had a couple of weeks where I'd been travelling mm. and I hadn't done pick-up as often. And so then that guilt came in. Um, and so it's... it's Whilst it may look easy as an outsider, kind of seeing how it's all going, it's mm. it's hard. And so I talk quite openly about that. And when I came back from my turn to leave the last time, I made a kind of pledge to do what I call, which is leave loudly. So, okay. you know, we used to You're have... You're not sneaking out, you mean? No. 
sneaking well, out on the nursery or, run. Or making up. Yeah. Oh, I'm off to an important meeting. <laughs> at five o'clock. Yeah. I'll see you all tomorrow. I'm like, oh. and people will come up to my desk mm. at like 10 to 5 if I'm on pickup and they'll be like, I just need you. And I said, I, honestly, if we start the conversation now, I won't be able to leave on time. Yeah. So either you, if it's urgent, you can phone me after seven o'clock. Yeah. If, um, if it can wait till tomorrow, let's wait till tomorrow because yeah. I'm going to pick up Kier. So I make it really clear to everybody mm. that, you know, I make those choices. And we've got a great... I'm trying to live to the role modelling point. Yeah. I think sometimes you have policies and agencies or initiatives that no one takes advantage of because they can't see the senior people doing it. Right. So we have a um, what we call smart working, which is essentially you can work anywhere, anytime. We've got no set core office hours... We've got no set, you have to be in the office on set days or mm. whatever it is. Put your clients and your teams at the heart of the decisions you make and you're empowered to make those choices. So that's what I do. And I'm really loud about it. <laughs> you know, I'm not quiet about anything, but I'm really loud about <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know, using that policy to yeah. the advantage of like making sure I'm getting that kind of seamless integration between work and home. Mm. And in our employee engagement surveys, people will call that out and say, because Joanne does it, yeah. I know that I can do it. Yeah. And it's simple things like that in terms of role modelling. The other thing I did was we bring in a, um, a manicurist uh, nice. every week. Yeah, every one week it's a Thursday, next week's a Friday. Um, and in the first couple of weeks that they were coming in, I went and got my nails done. Yeah. Again, just to give people permission to say, to sit down for like 20, 30 minutes in the day. Yeah. And it's right in the middle of the office. And everyone's like, well, if Joanne can do it. And yeah. we can all do it. Gives so everyone permission. It's kind of tiny it? things mm. like that that I try to do. And what about um, uh, other bits of diversity? I know you're um, very involved with the... What's the charity you're involved with? The Young um, Women's Trust. The Young Women's Trust. So what do they do and why, why are you involved with them and how can you help them and how does what they do inform what you then bring mm. back to the agency world? So Young Women's Trust is basically a charity for um, young women, 18 to 30, who are in lower no pay. Mm. And essentially, um, what we're trying to do is to break, again, this kind of institutional cycle of if a young woman is in a cycle of lower no pay by the time they're 24, yeah. the likelihood of them ever getting out of that is incredibly low. Yeah, I can imagine. So it's about offering kind of intervention mm. Um, strategies and techniques so there's kind of two key parts to what we do there's our policy and influencing work so trying to influence the government which we can all imagine right now is like a big challenge yeah how far up the priority list is that (laughs) yeah well exactly (laughs) but on things like um, equal minimum wage Mm. for people of all ages why we have a different minimum wage for people who are like 18 versus people who are 38 defies logic to me. Yeah, absolutely. So campaigning on things like that, which would have a disproportionate positive impact on young women. Um, Things like um, transparent pay. So trying to get organisations to see how much a job's worth. Because, again, women are uh, disproportionately disadvantaged because if it says competitive, given that women are traditionally on lower pays anyway... If the employer can get away with paying them less, yeah. they will. So stuff like that that's kind of built into um, employer behaviours or um, government legislation. But then the thing that I'm kind of really most proud of is our services work. So we have a whole service called Work It Out, which essentially is um, we give young women six coaching sessions. Oh, cool. 
Which is really cool, right? Yeah. Because coaching is something that's usually reserved for senior yeah. executive women, not for women who might not be in any uh, form of employment at all. And the whole aim of that is to build confidence, mm. to help them to figure out for themselves what they're passionate about, what they're good at, and also to give them some of the tools and techniques to get into decent Mm. um, jobs that offer a kind of a career path, that offer opportunities to progress so that we're kind of breaking that cycle of no and low pay. And it obviously skews in many ways to some of the, as we know, the most disadvantaged uh, groups of women, whether that's socioeconomic, whether it's um, single mothers Mm. who don't have much support uh, around them, or whether it's um, BME Mm. Um, and kind of that ethnic diversity group. And so, um, yeah, I'm the chair of the Young Women's Trust, um, which is really rewarding. We've just um, completed our new three-year strategy uh, where we're really focusing how do we... Our big kind of new pillar, we want to scale up, so things like work it out, we want to do bigger, better. Our influence and work, we want to accelerate, trying to get some of the stuff we're trying to get through through. Um, but the big focus for us is um, digital transformation. Mm. So how do we use um, the digital world, social platforms to reach more women and to do that in a good governance way with good safeguarding? Mm. Um, but that's that's where we've got to break through in the next few years. It reminds me of some of the stuff Michelle Obama talks about in her book Becoming. Have you read that? Not yet. yet. You will love it. It will really resonate with you, I think. It's just, I could, you know, the same amount of passion, political um, uh, drive as well to change things in society. So go and read it. I will. That's that's an action out of this. Uh, But I think what we learn, what I've learned kind of that I've brought back to Ketchum is um, new techniques and ways in which to reach diverse audiences. Right, okay. Because that's a huge challenge for our industry, right? We've been saying, we've all been saying for a long time now, um, and our old boss Colin Byrne was a massive champion of yes. diversity in the mm. sector. But we've made almost no progress. I know it's kind of like when it's when depressing. is it actually going to change? <laughs> yeah, and so, and I think there's been a bit of an arrogant attitude, and I don't think it's been a conscious arrogant mm. attitude. I think it's been quite subconscious in the industry about. Um, well, if we build it, they will come. Mm. And that's just not true. So finding different ways in which to reach diverse audiences is really important. But even more critical is giving them, during once you've found them, which is hard enough, and got them part of your recruitment process, how do you convince them that your organisation is somewhere where they can be themselves, mm. where they can belong, where there's other people like them within the organisation. And and that's really, really hard. So you avoid tokenism. Yeah, because yeah, that's, that's not totally anyone. pointless. And so I think what Elizabeth Bananuka is doing with BME mm. PR pros yeah. um, is really powerful. She's doing a cracking job there, isn't Really she? amazing job. Um, and I'm a huge supporter and fan of hers. Um, and I've met some amazing talent through that organisation that I would never have been able to find on my own. So that's amazing. And then I also am a big supporter of the Taylor Bennett Foundation. Mm. And we've got a lot of our entry-level candidates um, come through that programme. Huge, high quality. We we put a lot of effort into impressing them when they do their agency tours Gee. so that we are... Ketchum's one of their... Uh, their choices. But Elizabeth's challenge to all of us that are in leadership positions is like, it's not about 
It's not just about filling from the bottom. Yeah. There are loads of senior ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, you know, all the different boxes we're trying to we're trying to improve out there. Mm. So when you're recruiting for senior positions, you need to be more focused yeah. and more targeted Absolutely. and more determined. So that's certainly what I'm trying to do. And why is why is this important? Why is socioeconomic diversity and all types of diversity important? Not just because of it's not just because it's a good thing to do and it's the it's right thing for to do. It's good for business. Yeah. So talk to me about that. Talk to me about why it's good for business, why it's good for creativity, why it's particularly good for a creative industry to be diverse in all ways. Yeah, well, because 99 times of 100, the audience that we're trying to reach isn't just white, middle class and from the southeast of London. No, are they not? <laughs> Unfortunately not, because if they were, we'd nail it every yeah. time. And so what you find is, what's really interesting is when you bring talent in, whether it is people from a, a different or a lower socioeconomic background, mm. whether it's people from an ethnic background, whether it's people who are um, geographically diverse, you get different ideas mm. and different perspectives and different challenges. And so, you know... I think if you look at the campaigns that the majority of agencies run, and I'll put my hands up, we're quite guilty of this um, too, very London, mm. metropolitan centric, and their tone and how they, you know, who they're trying to reach, etc. But actually, a lot of the kind of influence and buying power is outside of London. Yeah. And so changing that perspective is really, really important. And then um, from a. Um, if you look at, you know, I think your business should reflect the community in which you live and operate. Now, given London is now the majority from an ethnic diversity, yeah. um, you know, makeup, how the hell are our London agencies all still dominated by white people? Mm. I mean, it's, it's, there's a complete disconnect yeah. there. Um, and again, it makes our work better because these are people who are living and breathing, you know, the city, the life, the you know, everything that we're we're trying to understand. I mean, a great example as well was you know just the difference in age groups. We had a client who wanted us, as most clients, everyone listening to this will be like, oh yeah, most clients are asking for that right now. Campaign for Gen Z, and um, no, nobody's talking about millennials anymore. No, millennials just too old and dull. Millennials are dead to the PR industry. <laughs> but we we ran a brainstorm where the majority of people we brought to it were Gen Z. Mm. And it was really interesting. The person running the brainstorm was not and was making some assumptions. And it was really interesting when oh. um, when she said, a comment was made about how um, young people don't like their parents, like their parents aren't cool. Like once you get to that kind of late teen, early 20s, like you keep your parents at a distance. And like the Gen Zs were like, oh, like, we don't know what you're talking about. Like really? our parents are like the coolest people in our lives. <laughs> Like, we're really proud it's of our like parents. people like us, though, right? It was, so. And I was like, well, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? I think that's fascinating because we, our generation, did have that relationship with our parents. Mm. Everybody typically went through that period where you were ashamed of your parents. Mm. They weren't funny. They weren't, you didn't want your friends to see them, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. With this new generation, I mean, they are, their parents are like their best pals. They're really proud of them. Yeah. They want to show them off. So it's complete... You don't know that if you don't have people from the audience that you're trying no, to reach absolutely. and talk to. You can't create real, authentic campaigns without it. That generational thing's really interesting, though, isn't it? Because I, yeah, I, 
I remember thinking of my parents as definitely being a generation older than me. And my mum had me when she was 22. So she was a decade. Yeah. It was a decade closer than I am to my oldest daughter. Um, and yet we, I have loads in common. Well, yeah, we listen to the same music. That's so nice. You know, we talk about the same stuff. Um, you know, I'm really into technology and uh, I pay attention to what they're into. And it's, you know, I think that kind of paying attention to what, you know, not dismissing young people and not just seeing them as target audiences as well, really trying to understand them, getting under the skin of them. It's yeah, it's really important, isn't it? I think it's more important than ever, especially because, you know, I'd say five, still probably five years ago, definitely ten years ago, you could make broad sweeping generalisations mm. about, um, you know, age groups gender, mm. mothers, you know, these kind of cohorts of yeah. audiences that you targeted. I just don't think you can do that anymore. Yeah, it's more tribal One of now, my isn't it? biggest bugbears is when people talk about millennials. We want to target millennials. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, what, uh, what type of millennial? 34-year-old or the age of a millennial is huge, <laughs> yeah. right? But then also whether they are, you know, urban yeah. or country, yeah. whether they are now white or mm. an ethnic diversity. Yeah, there's just so many, whatever their social yeah, so what are you talking about? what their behaviour's like. You know, there's just so many different aspects and I think one of the exciting um, journeys we're on in PR which we need to accelerate and which I'm really investing in at Ketchum is um, is our data and analytics. Mm, I was just going to say that because that, that breaks down those assumptions straight away, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, and, um, and delving, de- peeling the onion, never mm. being satisfied with what you've found out, mm. getting closer and closer to the centre, to the bullseye of what you're trying mm. to achieve. Not only makes your campaign better, stronger, mm. your creative better, stronger, but it also means you're better able to actually measure yeah. how successful you're being course correct, you know, mm. diversify and change. But it's it's a muscle that we have to you know, really, really work hard yeah. and make better because I think, as with anything that's kind of emerging and developing, it's really easy to just fall back into mm. bad habits and kind of have your finger in the air. Mm. My feeling is as well that there have been a lot of agencies who did a lot of bolting on of creative talent from outside the industry and there's been a lot of agencies who have also brought in a lot of data and analytics expertise which which has to necessarily Mm -hmm. come from outside the industry. I think the data analytics piece is working better than bringing in creatives from outside. Would that be the sense you've got? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think if you've got the right um, leader for data analytics Mm. and you've got the right team underneath them because again it's one of those terms when you see data analytics you know the scope of that Mm. is huge and so it's hard to find you know especially when you're building the muscle we've now got a team of about 15 data analytics and they're proper specialists they don't all do they're not generalists yeah you know they're very narrow each one of them is narrow in their focus and so you know that's it's hard work to build a team mm. like that and also then to integrate it into um, an industry and an agency which has had a generalist culture. Yeah. So that constant, you know, you constantly have to be reminding people, mm. pushing people. I mean, one of the things that I, um, I've i done is make data analytics mandatory on every client. Okay. So every one of that our client sense. directors 
has to make sure they take a part of the budget and give it to data and analytics mm. and see what the role of data analytics is for that client working in partnership with the client because it's too easy for it to be a, oh, we'll just leave that. Mm. We, and we know it's really important, but actually mm. we can kind of do it from our instinct. Well, given that you've got the tools at your disposal, it, do, it doesn't make sense not to use it now, does 100%. It? And it, it helps also at the other end with the whole evaluating the success of a campaign because you've got a starting point and totally. it's informed by some science at the beginning. Totally. So and that's something where we, in the industry, you know, we, again, I think we talk a good game on evaluation. But I mean, I just judged um, some awards, and like every everyone's evaluation is like the number of media hits that they got. Yeah, still a lot of numbers. The positive aren't sentiment that they got, mm. and you, you know, you sat there thinking, God, is this still how we're proving mm. our value as um, as a driver of growth for businesses? Because that's essentially what we have to be. Yeah, you know, we're not just a nice to have. We should be helping businesses to grow and thrive and really. Now make a connection and a relationship with whichever audience it is that's important to them. Do you think the PR industry's ever going to nail that? The whole, We've got to. The whole thing of proving that you move the bottom line for businesses. Yeah. yeah. It's critical, isn't it? Totally. And I think we've got... There's certainly... Um, clients who are willing to pay for that level of sophistication of analytics are getting way better um, data and insight mm-hmm. out the other end about how it's driving... Um, sales. Mm. So, but I think there's still, there's work to be done on both sides. One, the agency side needs to make sure that they have the right level of skill and expertise. Mm. So don't wing it because it just undermines all of us. <laughs> yeah. But on the client side, they have to really value it yeah. and be willing to pay for it. It's not a cheap service. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and it's still interesting when you get to, if you win a new piece of business and it's a new relationship and you get to the kind of procurement, oh, well, we need to get 10% down, they will start to cut things like mm. data and analytics. And so that education piece on the other side to say, there's other things, and it's where I always push back, there are other things that are less important that we yeah. should cut long before Absolutely. that piece. So it's it's definitely on both sides of the industry that we need to work harder. It's ironic, isn't it, that at the point in a kind of tough uh, industry environment where those client agency relationships are more important than ever, because unless you get under the skin of each other, it's you're not going to achieve what you could achieve. Procurement is kind of there, yeah, waving a flag and sort of getting in the way and bringing it back down to the yeah. the cost of the service again. It's, yeah. It must be really tricky when you're you're kind of trying to establish that new relationship with a, a new or potential client. Yeah, and it's it's always hard when it's a new opportunity. Mm. So you're trying to get to know the people, the business, all of those sorts of things, to understand, like to really get under the skin of is procurement really there as air cover, mm. which is my view is the best place for them to be, <laughs> or are they driving some of the decisions? Yeah. And most of the time, not always, but most of the time, the procurement people don't actually understand our discipline. Mm. So they're trying to influence and cut things that, you know, are really important. So it becomes quite a painful mm. process. You need quite strong comms clients yeah. to to intervene in that. It's made the pitch process even more painful. Is that possible? Yeah, I mean, the pitch process, particularly where procurement's involved, are longer yeah. than ever. Yeah. Um, I was chatting with a few of my peers from other agencies, and on average it's about six months. That's insane, isn't From it? start to finish. Oh. And... Um, there's a number of um, times where it just dies. Mm. So you can spend like four, five, six months in a process 
and then you never hear yeah, anything. Yeah, it doesn't come to anything. I hear this quite, I hear this don't, a frightening the, amount. The client actually. hasn't even appointed an yeah. agency and, and it's, it feels really disrespectful mm. and I think there has to be, in our industry as well, a rebalance on the relationship between um, clients and agencies mm. because agent, and I think we're as much at fault here on the agency side in the sense that there's always someone on the agency side who's willing to undercut, mm. who's willing to, in my view, devalue mm. our expertise and discipline by giving it away for cheaply or just agreeing to things that we really shouldn't agree mm. to. Like, for example, no data and analytics. Like, if we're going to be taken seriously as a discipline that influences the C-suite that drives business growth, then we need to have you know, a bit of balls about us yeah. and stand up for ourselves. Absolutely. But we have to lock arms and do it together yeah. because, as you know, one bad apple can rot the whole yes. lot. And that happens a lot. But on the flip side, um, you know, when it comes to clients, I think they need to understand how much time, effort and real money goes into pitch processes. Mm. You know, especially big, you know, when it's big, big opportunities, we spend a lot of time, a lot of resource, a lot of expertise and a lot of real hard cash mm. trying to be the best agency that they see. And so it's quite disrespectful not to have a fair process, yeah. not to have a process that completes, not to give you know really robust and uh, coherent feedback mm. at the end because, um, again, it just undervalues... How do you change that, though? I mean, this is you know the industry has been putting up with the kind of slightly ad hoc nature of PR pitching and mm. the you know the assumption that the time will be put in and that senior people will be on it and it'll be your best ideas and everyone's working till midnight, you know, to get the 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 deck up together. I mean, that's just how it is, right? How do you change that? Well, I think we could do some work as an industry around basic standards. Mm. So there's no basic standards of a pitch process. I mean, it can be anything from you know, a couple of paragraphs on a bit of paper and three days to turn it around mm. to the, you know, the procurement process from hell that lasts for six months and yeah. has 800 spreadsheets and 10 in-person meetings. Yeah. So, you know, there's no kind of this is what best in class uh, pitch process looks like. Um, yeah, we've talked a lot uh, in the industry about trademarking ideas. Um, you know, there's been some horror stories uh, even recently about people pitching business and then the clients taking the ideas mm. and just running with them. So, you know, that kind of intellectual and creative capital, mm. you know, we need to put some protections around that where we can. Um, and I think depending on the scale of the pitch, you know, as we've talked about before, ad agencies mm. get paid for big, giant pitches. Yeah. Now, there should be, again, a value or an attempt. And again, we have to do it together. Mm. So maybe it's the PRCA, you know, but we need to, as an industry, kind of stand up for our dis discipline and be clear about what value we bring. Well, particularly as, you know, a lot of, a lot of, the, a lot of ad agencies, as you can see from the things that when it can, are going in with an earned idea, an integrated execution which is what we've always done and they're yeah. getting paid for that yeah um at the ideas stage yeah and pr isn't so yeah, yeah i mean maybe that's down to th 
thing I'm forever banging on about, which is industry confidence in our own abilities and value and all that kind of stuff. And maybe, again, it comes back, it's like a full circle, right? Because it comes back to how do we prove how valuable Mm. we are and how do we show how smart we are? Mm. I mean, I have to, being kind to my cousins in the advertising industry, I meet smarter people in PR than I do in advertising. You know, in terms of their intellectual curiosity, their drive, their hunger, you know, their ability to go deep. So I don't think we're we've got we're less smart in our industry. No, I Far don't. for it, I think we're probably more smart. Yeah. And I think because we've always been you now this the little sibling, we're hungrier to, you know, prove ourselves and to really deliver for our clients. So there's no reason why we shouldn't have confidence. Mm. But I think we need better standards and better integration of working together to really show that value. And what's the what's the plan for next this this year, two thousand nineteen for Ketchum then? You're gonna be otherwise engaged for some of it, but what's the <laughs> Yes, for a short period. What, what's the kind of the goal? Where do you guys want to get to by this time next year? Well so um on a global level, we you know, when I came in as new CEO of uh, London, we also had a new global CEO, Barry Rafferty. Of course. And so she has set out um a vision for us to really transform from being an agency to a consultancy. Mm. And so that goes back to some of the things we've been talking about, you know, really being about um, solving our clients' business challenges, not just thinking about it from a comms point of view. Mm. So that requires us um, as consultants to be deeper in our clients' business and the industries and the context in which they're operating. So that's, that's really exciting. And it's really exciting for our people because they feel like that's elevating mm what's being asked of them. Um, and so they're having to work harder intellectually, but that's really rewarding, right? So we're really focused um, on that. In London, um, for me, there's a couple of things that are really important. Mandatory data and analytics. Mm-hmm. We've just hired a new um, head of data and analytics, Fran Kavanagh, who is um, being very robust with me about what she needs. I bet she is. Uh, yeah. In order Good to... <laughs> I said, this is what I want. And she's like, well, this is what you need to do for me, which is great. Um, so I'm excited about what she's going to bring mm. to that team. Um, and she's excited because I'm a champion of that uh, specialism within our business. And therefore, mandatory data and analytics is absolutely critical. The other piece is, you know, Ketchum has been has built its reputation on exceptional client service. Mm. You know, our um, average tenure for clients still sits at ten years, which I think is an incredible achievement. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's pretty good, right? right? <laughs> but we need to um, we need to innovate in client service, and as the industry changes, the way clients think and buy changes, often who our clients changing, mm. and more and more our clients are from the marketing discipline. So I've got a big focus on innovation and client service excellence. So doubling down on that. And then um, the third piece is um, around our um, creative output. And that's a combination of things. So part of it is around um, how we get to our insights. So we've developed a new process that's going to help us to get to the point we just talked about in audiences, get really much deeper Mm. uh, with audiences. And then coming up with ideas that really drive business, not just because they're a great idea, but because they know they're going to reach those audiences and how it's going to move them and influence them and drive them forward. And the kind of wrapping on that and the bow that we put on it is our design and production facility, which has never been stronger. So... 
making sure what I call the creative engine, mm. making sure that's really motoring and humming uh, and driving client growth is really important. Cool. So not very much. Not very much. <laughs> yeah, your to-do list every day. It's long. It's like, <laughs> like off the scale. Um, Joanne, it's been lovely to see you and um, great to have such a lovely wide-ranging chat about, you know, this, that and everything else yeah. in the agency land. Thanks very much for joining me in the Echo Chamber. Thank you. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Today.